Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 28, Stars. Today's proverb comes from Dr. Johnson. I'll read it twice. He that considers how little he dwells upon the condition of others will learn how little the attention of others is attracted by himself. Once more. He that considers how little he dwells upon the condition of others will learn how little the attention of others is attracted by himself. Others think of you as often as you think of them. Generally speaking, others care about you as much as you care about them. Or you don't care about others more than they care about you. Caring about other people is not natural. It's supernatural. Which means that caring about others is a triumph over some kind of adversity, some kind of spiritual adversity. We tend to think we care more than we do. And we tend to think others care more than they do. That's the upshot of today's proverb. We tend to think that caring is easy, and we want it to be easy. We want to have a very low threshold for judging 
that we have cared for others. Our threshold for others, so far as measuring their care for us, much higher. But the modern view of care, which is how I'm taking Dr. Johnson's expression, dwelling upon the condition of others. The modern view of care is actually very low. And it's dangerously low because few modern men are willing to admit how little we think of care. Our view of caring is so low that we are willing to lend our credulity to the idea of empaths and very sensitive people who claim that they are born with special superhuman powers, like X-Men, but instead of shooting lasers out of their eyes or calling up storms with their minds, they simply care very deeply about absolutely everyone and that they do this naturally, that they're born with a disposition toward virtue. The quote from Dr. Johnson is both liberating and disturbing. It's liberating to admit our faults, to admit that we don't actually care as much about others as we wish we did. And it's disturbing to realize that others don't care about us more than we care about them, at least not generally speaking. A lot of things that are liberating are disturbing as well. Now, I don't mean that freedom, sudden freedom, is not also exhilarating. And I'm not suggesting that anyone is better off in an enslaved condition. But there is something disturbing about freedom. I have not been on an airplane in eight years now. And I was terrified of flying for about three years before I gave up on even trying. So there were three years where I was pathologically afraid of flying. So afraid that from the moment that I bought a plane ticket, I would begin having nightmares, fantasies about crashes. I would find myself incapable of sleep, curled up in a ball in bed, dreading the flight that I had to take. And my fear of flying was so great but I would often start leaking money like a sieve in the days before I took a trip by plane. I'd buy little gifts, big gifts for friends. I would spend lavishly and I did not make plans, any plans for after the trip was over because there was some part of my soul very deep down that suspected that my life was about to be over. And what would happen, of course, several times is that I would be terrified of the flight. I would arrive for whatever um, purpose I had left town, my destination, my conference, my vacation. 
And I could forget for a little while that I was going to have to take a, a flight back, but the whole vacation always seemed like my last vacation. And I would be terrified to get on the plane to return home, and the whole time the plane was in the air, I would think, I'm going to die. But then the plane would touch down back in my home city, and I would breathe a very heavy sigh of relief, and I would think with some amazement, I didn't die. And of course, there was a kind of thrill at having made it, because I always thought that I had narrowly escaped death. No other passenger on the plane thought this, of course. I've never been involved in rough, turbulent, sudden drops, wind pockets, nothing like that, air pockets. But I would always feel upon returning home from a trip that I had barely made it, like the beginning of Indiana Jones when he leaps out of that tunnel and that huge boulder comes crashing behind him and he barely made it. That's the way I always felt whenever I got back from a trip. But of course, about eight seconds after I felt that way, I realized that I was back to my life and that returning to my life meant returning to all of my problems. And I did, in fact, have to go back to all the difficult relationships that I had at work, all of my struggles with sin, and so forth. And so to arrive back from the trip was both liberating, freeing. I could be done with the fear that I was about to die. But in returning to my life, I returned to all the disturbing physical and spiritual problems that I had to deal with. On the verge of the trip, I thought, well, maybe I won't have to worry about any of these health issues that I have for much longer. Of course, as soon as the plane touches down back home, I guess I'm going to have to worry about all those health problems again. So the quote from Dr. Johnson I find both liberating and disturbing. He that considers how little he dwells on the condition of others will learn how little the attention of others is attracted by himself. It's freeing and disturbing at the same time. Caring about other people is difficult. That's my thesis. Christ commands us to do unto others as we would do unto ourselves, but it's pretty hard, usually pretty hard, to do both at the same time. You've kind of got to decide whether you want to do unto others or do unto yourself, but it's very difficult to do unto others at the same time you're doing unto yourself. You might enjoy having your back scratched, and thus realize that somebody else likes having their back scratched. But you can't scratch their back at the same time that you scratch your own. You find it too difficult, too awkward. I like having my lawn raked. So maybe I should rake somebody else's lawn. And when I rake somebody else's lawn, I can't rake mine at the same time. Caring about others is as hard as not caring about yourself. In order to care about others, you've got to quit caring about yourself for a moment. And you can go back to it later, but you've got to stop for a while. 
And that's very difficult because from the moment that we wake up in the morning, we're caring about ourselves. We're all so well-practiced in caring about ourselves. We're, we're good at it. Very good at taking care of ourselves. Thus, we're not only very skilled self-carers, but we're habituated to it as well. Caring for yourself is what you do when you're not thinking otherwise. Caring about other people then requires us to break a sort of omnipresent habit, which is why caring about other people requires supernature. It requires something beyond what's natural. You might have been present for a Circe conference several years ago when Wes Callahan gave a fantastic lecture about praying for the dead. And in the course of this lecture, he made a certain analogy that I was very moved by. And I don't remember how much of this is Wes's thought and how much I've in ruminating on it, kind of expanded it in my head. But as I recall, Wes said that he loved his body very much. He loved himself very much. And that for the average person, caring for your body is like caring for this sort of adorable little pet, some little lap dog. And that we can't help but constantly tending to and flattering and feeding this little lap dog we buy these little trinkets that we think will amuse it. In um, films and uh, television shows, we've all seen the rich old woman, the rich old socialite who has some small white yappy lap dog that she feeds, you know, foie gras and wagyu beef minced in a little diamond dish that she sets gingerly on the floor. We'll see this woman who buys this little dog an Hermes sweater. Collar from Tiffany's. And those little old ladies don't clean up after their dogs. And they curse like sailors if anyone suggests that their little dogs aren't welcome in the grocery store. Well, that's you says Wes, except you're the old lady and your body is the spoiled lapdog. And that's everybody. Everybody's body is the spoiled lapdog. And everybody is a wealthy old heiress that <laughs> spoils and pampers this little lapdog body that they carry around with them everywhere, gingerly taking care of it. That's just the condition that people are born in. Anything over, anything above, anything more noble than that is of God. Caring about others is like driving the wrong way down the 405 during rush hour. It's counterintuitive. It's risky. It's not uh, obvious why anyone would want to do it. Now, it's not impossible, though. Right? This is not what Dr. Johnson said. Dr. Johnson doesn't say it's impossible to care about others. The quote is about how little we dwell on others. He that considers how little he dwells upon the condition of others 
will learn how little the attention of others is attracted by himself. Now, we dwell so little on others, not only because it's difficult at all times in all places, but it's also very difficult to care about others when you live in a modern city. The modern city makes it difficult in new and different sorts of ways to care about others. Because caring about others requires time and effort and money. But when you live in a city, you know more people than you have time or money to care about. This is bothersome. This is vexing to know that you can't care deeply about everyone. And yet we insist on referring to every little society, every little club or group of people that we're a part of as a community or a family. We're glad you've decided to work and join the Arby's family. I'm sure that's what they tell you at the orientation. Thank you for joining the Whole Foods community. Like it's a church or something. Like it's its own state. I complain about this all the time. The rise of community as a slogan and a commodity has occurred at roughly the same time as we've quit spending time with others or quit enjoying spending time with others. The more we run away from others, the more we isolate ourselves, the more we need to tell ourselves that the opposite is true and that there is community in isolation. This has become this mantra, this propaganda over the last two months. It's possible to be together with other people when you're alone. No, it's not. That's what makes this whole thing so awful, is that we're not alone together. There's no such thing. Where your money is, there your heart will be as well. Your heart's not with everyone you see a digital image of. No one suddenly gives their heart to a stranger for four minutes and then forgets about them for the rest of their life and walks away. That's not how dwelling on the condition of others works. It requires Herculean effort. This quote from Dr. Johnson also encourages us to this deeper sort of self-awareness. The kind of self-awareness really that all proverbs ask of us. But a sort of self-awareness that's really valuable in the modern meeting. Like, Imagine for a moment if every meeting you ever took part in began with the person leading the meeting, saying, just want to remind you all, he that considers how little he dwells on the condition of others will learn how little the attention of others is attracted by himself. Okay, now we can get on to business. Imagine if that was... The slogan of every meeting, if that was the guiding principle of whether you should talk in a meeting or not. You've all, I mean, everyone has. You've been in this meeting and you've watched someone get sucked into this vortex, this tunnel vision, where they are tenaciously pursuing a discussion of some matter that does not concern anyone in the room but themselves. 
it could be something like the administration, the person leading the meeting says, and of course I'm thinking in terms of teachers' meetings here, well, we need everyone to clear out their mailboxes on Friday afternoon. And upon hearing this, there's someone who raises their hand and says, you know, so Fridays are a little tough for me because of my schedule. And then they spend five minutes talking about their schedule. And then they finally finish and say something like, so, you know, I was thinking that maybe I should clear my mailbox on Monday mornings. And everyone is stunned that this person has just taken up so much time refining their own personal schedule out loud on the fly in front of everyone. But they're not done. Like, there's this pause and then they keep going. Like, well, I mean, I could check my mailbox Thursday afternoon, but, you know, someone might leave something in my box on Friday morning and assume I'd have that material for the entirety of next week. But if I check my mailbox on Monday mornings, I'll only be a day behind the schedule, whereas I could check it on Thursday afternoons. Then I wouldn't be so much a day ahead of schedule as four days behind. So I'm kind of thinking, and everyone's like, good gracious, shut up. Do you not perceive in the changed atmosphere of this room that no one cares? Of course, this person does not ask any question at any point. Now, if you ask that person why they thought it was fit to make 40 people listen to what was an entirely personal matter, you know what they'd probably say? I mean, they'd probably say, well... I know it was a personal matter, but I thought it had an import with a much broader reach than that. Probably what they'd say. I thought thought that's what we had meetings for, was to hash out stuff like this. I thought other people would want to know, too. The other people, I thought, might have been thinking the same thing. Everyone's schedule's different, you know, and they might launch off into another 10-minute description of why why they had to waste everybody's time with their personal question. There are the people who haven't figured out that after a meeting has been going for an hour, when someone says, all right, does anyone have any other questions? That's just a polite way of saying, if no one says anything for the next four seconds, we can all go home. After two seconds, there's always somebody who's like, "Mm, nope, this question's worth asking. And they put up their hand. I believe that we're all waiting for the Martin Luther of meetings to come forward and begin his glorious work in this world. Although, here's Dr. Johnson's point. Dr. Johnson's point is not about that guy in the meeting. Because unless you think you're special, you're that guy. The guy who keeps putting up his hand in a meeting and asking an entirely personal question, that's you. That guy's there to prove something about the human condition to you, your condition. That guy's a holy fool. He's Simeon Stylites. He's a snake on a staff lifted up in the desert so you can look at him and be healed of your own selfishness. You're that guy. I'm that guy. Unless you think you're special, you're that guy. And if you think you're special, you're that guy. Either way, you're that guy. Whether you think you're him or you don't, you're that guy. 
Once many years ago, I had a girlfriend who was for a time living with her sister in an apartment. And on a certain occasion, I had come over to this apartment to discuss something important with my girlfriend. And so I went to her sister's house and I knocked on the door and her sister answered the door. And when she answered the door, she smiled at me and she said, hello. I just sort of pushed the front door open a little wider, stepped between the door and this young woman and walked into her apartment and found my girlfriend and started talking. And about half an hour later, apropos of nothing, like coming out of a daze, I looked at Carrie, who was my girlfriend's sister, and said, when I showed up here, did I just kind of rudely walk by you at the door without saying anything? And she said, yes. And I said, I'm so sorry. I wasn't thinking. And I wasn't thinking wasn't meant as an excuse. It was a diagnosis of the problem. I was lost in this trance of self-interest. And who knows how many times in my life I've done things just as bad, just as rude, and not realized it half an hour later. There are times when over the summer, between school years, I just basically forget to be a husband for two or three days. And I get devoured by some project I'm working on, which might be writing a book, but might also be watching all the films of John Carpenter. And then by God's mercy, after two or three days, I'm reading something or eavesdropping on a conversation, and I hear someone use the expression, good husband, and I snap out of it. I think, oh, that's right. That's what I'm supposed to be. That's what I'm supposed to be being. And I race home, and I pay attention very closely to everything that people are saying, and I wash the dishes. It's hard to care about other people. It's not impossible. It's just difficult. Now, God knows how hard it is to care about other people. He gets it. God's even set up the rules to make it easier to care about other people. I think we've got to make use of the ways that God is trying to make it easy for us. For whatever reason, there's this curious reading of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is common these days. It probably emerged in the course of the 20th century, and if I had to bet green money on it, I'd bet it came out of the social gospel movement of the early 20th century. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the whole telling of it is a response that Jesus makes to the question, who's my neighbor? There's this weird, curious tendency to interpret the parable to mean everyone in the world is your neighbor. Which strikes me as absurd, not only on the level of common sense, but also on the level of basic hermeneutical competence. 
Uh, I know. I've read The Brothers K, and I understand the idea that every man is responsible for every sin ever committed, and I believe that. I know it's on the line in those passages from Dostoevsky. But the parable of Good Samaritan is not about that. Your neighbor is the one that God puts in front of you over and over again. Your neighbor is not a stranger that walks in front of you randomly. Your neighbor is the one that God has installed near you in your life. No small part of the Christian walk is the belief that God orders our steps and that we've all unknowingly entertained angels in the course of those steps. And as opposed to thinking, on average, maybe, oh man, and runs into an angel once or twice in his whole life. It might be that half the people at Kroger you walk past this afternoon are actually stars. God brings people near you to make them easier to love. The guy who keeps asking questions at those Friday afternoon meetings is actually easier to love than your friend that's a thousand miles away doing God knows what right now. Because that guy asking questions is in the room right now. He's before you right now. Even if it's just a Zoom room. And he needs respect. And forbearance. And long-suffering. He has provided the opportunity for you to be obedient now, which is the only time you can be obedient. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.